Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. After 33 years of working for the National Treasury Employees Union, its president, Tony Reardon, is calling it a career. He'll retire in August. When his term as president concludes, he joins me now in studio. Tony, good to have you in. Tom, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And golly, 33 years. Let's begin at the top here and Let's talk about IRS itself. Kind of, I think of that as the central agency for NTEU, even though you're actually at 34 different agencies Correct. and components. But how do you think things have actually changed for the average IRS member in that third of a century? Well, I think uh, certainly things uh, have gotten uh, much more difficult for IRS employees, and I and I would attribute that to a number of things, Tom. I think first of all, you had uh, all the all the funding issues that the IRS had, really dating back to 2010, if not even a little bit earlier than that. And so as a result, um, the IRS lost uh, just tens of thousands of employees. And that certainly created a very tough environment for um, employees. But, you know, when, and when you think back to about 2013, as I recall, the IRS had to curtail a lot of uh, training that they did for employees. And so, you know, my concern for employees has been that since the IRS doesn't have the funding, doesn't have the staffing, doesn't have the training for folks, that it really has created an environment where employees are not um, set up for success the way that they should be. Now, what I'm hopeful of, certainly given the $80 billion that the uh, Inflation Reduction Act is bringing to the IRS, and now with a new commissioner, with Danny Werfel, I am hopeful that we're going to really start to see a change in all that. It seems like the IRS is always the crucible for differences of politics that really are not of the agency's doing, because you know Republicans and Democrats have long-standing differences over tax policy, over tax enforcement, and they use the IRS as kind of the proving ground for those arguments whereas the IRS is simply a functionary agency that carries out whatever the policy and the statutes are that it's presented with. Well, absolutely. I mean, I I think the sort of average American doesn't always know that, look, it's Congress that that puts all the tax laws in place. And the IRS is simply um, uh, responsible for administering those tax policies, uh, tax laws. And you know, the other one of the things that I tell people all the time, and I have for for many years, because they, I think the um, most Americans don't think about this as well. The IRS literally brings in ninety five to ninety six percent of our government's revenue, so they happen to be a very important um, uh, piece of our nation's economy. And, you know, I think when people start to hear some of the real story behind what the IRS delivers and what they're responsible for and how they got to be responsible for it, I think that really kind of changes often uh, the, the viewpoint. And getting back to the issue of the reduction in staff that kind of took a step function those years ago, also 30-some years ago, most of the processing, all of the processing for tax forms, tax returns, was paper. Remember those desks that were surrounded by an array of trays for paper sorting, all this manual paperwork. That largely has gone away, I think, starting in around the late 90s with the advent of 
online payment. That was during the Clinton administration. So does it need the numbers that it had traditionally, given all of the automation that's come in and the technology? Well, um, certainly we are in um, the IRS is in desperate need of more employees. There is no question about that. And there are so many reasons why. I mean, number one, if you just think in terms of um, in call centers, you know, where where they are required to answer phone calls from Americans. I mean, the level of service that the IRS had in responding to calls up until recent times was in the low teens and even below that. Well, the American people, the American taxpayer, have a much higher expectation of getting their phone calls answered, right? So there's certainly need of, of customer service, contact reps, to be able to respond to uh, phone calls. But also, just in terms of um, folks who are responsible for um, helping the average American that needs to go into a tax center to get questions answered, many of those offices were closed because they didn't have the staffing. And it's really our most vulnerable Americans that end up being negatively impacted because not all of them have computers. They don't don't all understand how to, you know, to work the various tax programs that are out there. They need to go in and simply be able to talk to somebody. And um, so there's a wide reason. Um, IT, you know, there, there is certainly a need for IT folks. I mean, I think we all know or most people know that um, the IRS is using computer systems that um, are older than I am. And I'm old. <laughs> so, 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 you know, I mean, there has to be some work done um, in staffing across the agency, technology across the agency, training across the agency, and so much more. We're speaking with Tony Reardon. He is the president of the National Treasury Employees Union, and he's going to retire in August. We have him in the studio. And that whole, yeah, that whole modernizing question, that has been kind of a morale killer and a it's really chewed up through a lot of personnel both at the executive level and at the regular employee level because they've made so many runs since i guess around 92 is when the first modernization was kind of launched for irs and the systems were getting old then and now we're 30 years past that more than 30 years and yet the same master file system is still running in the same original code and i mean from your standpoint why has it been such an intractable thing that they've spent billions and restarted that project probably a half a dozen times. Yeah, you know, I, I I certainly don't have an inside track on on exactly what's happened in IRS leadership or management that has resulted in this. What I can tell you is that frontline employees are the ones who have ultimately really paid the price, and and I might add, um, the American taxpayer. So one of the things that I'm really hopeful of, and I've had many conversations with uh, current commissioner Danny Werfel. He is a guy that I think understands um, running a very large operation. And so I'm hopeful that he's going to be able to garner all of the resources necessary to, to be able to start to turn that. And, and I think he has a very uh, strong understanding about what needs to happen in the in the IT arena to start to turn that around because ultimately the idea has to be that um, employees have the tools and the resources that they need to do the job because one of the things that I can tell you as the national president of NTEU is when I talk to IRS employees and I have for 30 over 30 years the number one thing that they want to do 
they want to effectively serve the American taxpayer to a person. And so I think it's really important that the IRS provide the tools and the training and, and resources that um, employees need so they can do that. I guess one thing that is working in their favor, the average employee's favor, is that conditions and attitudes toward the IRS are very different than they were in the era before that reorganization under Charles Rosati. And this followed, and I hate to say it, but the jackbooted thug perception era. So in that sense, there has been progress. Well, yeah, I think there I think there has been, but you know, the other thing that we have to keep in mind, and and this is for me, um, I, I guess what I would describe as a really sort of sad part of our history around the IRS. I mean, we've all heard, whether it's on the floor of Congress, in the media, but some folks talking about, for example, the 87,000 um, armed agents that are going to come and get you. I mean, and it's and it's all lies. That is in no way, shape, or form what is happening. You know, just in terms of the 87,000, I mean, 52 to 56,000 of those are people who um, they're going to be replacing folks who are retiring or leaving the agency. And one of the things that I think is important for the average American taxpayer to know, at the IRS, there is something on the order of 2,000 to 2,500 folks um, who... Um, carry a weapon, and they're and they're and they're not even a part of the regular IRS. You know, they're agents um, and they're law enforcement types, and you know. Th- so this whole notion of eighty-seven thousand armed agents is a fabrication that is, I think, really meant to um, uh, move forward some kind of a political agenda, and it's just not accurate. My guest is Tony Reardon, president of the National Treasury Employees Union. We are up against the clock. Can you stick with me for another segment? Absolutely. We'll be back right after this short break. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. My guest in studio is Tony Reardon the longtime president of the National Treasury Employees Union. He'll be stepping down in August when his term expires. We spent a lot of time talking about IRS, but NTEU is much more than IRS these days. 34, I believe, 34, you're right. Yeah, tell us how it got to be so spread out, even though it still has treasury in the name. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, that started, and and you know uh, Bob Tobias well, who was the national president of NTEU two presidents ago. And then, uh, of course, Colleen Kelly, who preceded me as one of my favorites as national president? Yeah, they're both two of my favorite human beings. As is Bob, I should yeah. say. Yes, he's a regular here. Yeah, and they—they, they, uh, I remain very close to uh, both of them. But you know, the fact is, I think what really transpired was, you know, starting really with um, with Bob. I mean, it probably started with Vince Connery, though I didn't personally know Vince, who was our first full-time NTU president, and then Bob came in. Um, you know. NTEU, I think, is really well known as being a very thoughtful, professional, hard-charging union. And as a result, other agencies, employees in other agencies said, hey, wait a minute, you know, what you guys are doing for the IRS, we look at the contract, we see how strong the IRS um, uh, collective bargaining agreement is. Um, 
we want that. And so it just started to build, and it just continued to build over time. Most recently, we've added uh, three chapters uh, with the uh, Bureau of Land Management. And so we're, we're always, you know, we're always looking um, at growing as long as the um, agencies and the, and the jobs of the people that we would be uh, representing are a good fit with NTEU. Now, in the public sector, in the federal level, anyhow, unions are proscribed by law from bargaining over pay and benefits because people are in the system that they're in. So what are the elements, in your opinion, that make a good collective bargaining agreement for the federal sector? Yeah, I mean, I think there are, um, Tom, a a lot of different um, pieces of it. I mean, I think in terms of, you know, the all of the work that people have to do, um, NTEU, through the collective bargaining agreement, and unions in the federal sector in the collective bargaining agreement process, have the ability to touch on how work is done, what work is done. It, it deals with every single element of a, uh, an employee's work life, um, you know, in terms of work flexibilities, telework, and, and telework is one that I am particularly uh, uh, pay particular attention to now, given the the uh, pandemic and really the change in what's happened in the in the uh, workplace. People are looking for uh, for telework. So, you know, the collective bargaining agreement has obviously so many different elements, but it's all those things that I think are uh, really important. And a lot of people say, this is one of these popular tropes, that you can't fire a federal employee. It's impossible. They have jobs for life no matter how they perform. And does it look that way from your standpoint? No, it doesn't look that way at all. And I think that's just, you know, um, um, another uh, uh, inaccuracy that's that's put out there as kind of an attack on on uh, federal sector unions or unions in, in general, but certainly, as you've described it, federal sector unions. Look, the reality is that nobody wants employees who are um, not doing what they're supposed to be doing. The problem is, and what we've always maintained, if, you know, it, it's important, let me say it this way, it's important for federal managers to make sure that they are dealing um, in an honest, upfront way with employees, making sure that they're trained, making sure that they are communicating with them. If somebody is truly just not doing the job, um, there are ways to take action against them. Federal agencies have a way to do it. Certainly NTEU and unions have their role to play in the process. Um, and you know, if, if everybody does their job, the right thing typically will, will happen. I wanted to ask you about a phenomenon of the Trump years, which I never really directly asked a union, and that is the unions lost their official time, and in many cases they lost their physical offices that they had in the large agencies, like IRS and some of the other unions in their, in their agencies. What was that like? I mean, what well, was the real effect there? Well, let me, let me just say that um, at NTEU we did not experience a, a lot of that, because what happened was... Um, and you're referring to um, the uh, May 2018 executive orders that the Trump administration put forward. And, but, but those executive orders did not um, impact where unions had contracts, collective bargaining agreements already in place. 
So we did not experience that, for example, in places like uh, the IRS or CBP, which are our two largest agencies where we uh, represent employees. We did, however, experience that in health and human services. And so what was it like? Um, it was, um, I, I would say, a morale buster for, for employees because the message was that you, federal employee, HHS, HHS employee, you don't matter. We don't care if you have a say in your work life. You're the ones on the front lines doing the work. You understand who it is, you know, the work that you're doing and what you're doing for the American people, but we don't really care about what you have to say and, and don't want your input. And that's the way that it played out. And so it was this whole issue of trust, I think, was really violated between agency leadership and, and um, uh, frontline employees. And frontline, frontline employees concluded, you don't care about me. And when you have that in the mix, it's a major, major problem. And are things, would you say, demonstrably better now? Yes. Yes, without question. Um, in fact, um, we are um, uh, very close at HHS to um, finalizing a new contract. And so, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I would do is, or I would say, is that when you look at the Biden administration, they have really um, done, I think, a great deal in terms of looking at, at the labor management relationship and understanding the importance of it and trying to position their agencies to be, uh, to, to be a better um, uh, partner, if you will, with uh, unions. We're speaking with Tony Reardon, president of the National Treasury Employees Union. He'll be retiring in August. And in the time we have left, let's talk about you. Okay. Because uh, your dad was associated with NTEU. And tell us more about your own history. Yeah, I, I would love to. So, you know, I, I, I actually was just telling this story to a group of NTEU leaders yesterday. You know, when um, before I came to NTEU, yes, my dad spent uh, about eight years at NTEU. He was, in fact, um, hired by Bob Tobias, uh, one of my predecessors. And then, and then after my dad left, then I was hired um, in um, 1990 by uh, Bob Tobias. And, you know, I remember thinking before I ever came to NT, you know, and, and Bob had what he called an executive committee at that time, senior managers. And I remember thinking, wow, if I were to ever be to be in a position like this, and especially at NTEU, which was an organization that I truly loved because I understood what it did for the for federal employees, and I and I saw the love my dad had for NTEU and the respect he had for the union, and so I thought, wow, if I could ever be on the executive committee at NTEU, I will have arrived. And then, lo and behold, someday I become, you know, in 2015, I become the national president. So it has been really the honor of my life. Um, to be the president of NTEU. And what occupies the president's time day to day? Oh, it's it's all kinds of things. It's doing um, media. You know, I, I would say that just generally speaking, the national president is the chief spokesperson of NTEU. So that certainly involves the media. It involves talking to our chapter leaders, hearing the stories of federal employees. Because the truth be told, in the NTEU story, it's the members, it's the frontline employees and our chapter leaders who are the heroes. And so I spend a lot of my time talking to them because hearing their stories is how I frame um, my discussions, whether it be with the media, 
the uh, with Congress, with agency heads, um, with the administration. So those are all important uh, elements, I believe. And how are relations with the other federal unions? I mean, typically in the industrial sector, there is one union that kind of covers a particular function. Do you operate like the five families and you've got a division of territory or how does that work? No, um, no, we don't. And But what I will say about the relationship is I think that the major unions, federal sector unions, I think work pretty well together and certainly have a great deal of respect for one another. Um, but and, your, and your are, style is a lot different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say that's I would say that's probably true. And you know, we don't always agree on everything, certainly, but we try to pay attention. And I've had very recent conversations, for example, with uh, President Everett Kelly at AFGE, where you know we've talked about ways that we can work together because I think it is essential for the labor movement to come together because we all understand that there's strength in numbers. And um, so, as a result, we really do try to find ways that we can complement one another, work with one another on various issues, whether it be in the courtroom um, or at the bargaining table or, or wherever it is that we can kind of help each other. And earlier you said you're old, but you seem pretty energetic to me. So post-retirement, will you really retire and fish or will you keep a, a hand in this, uh, this fascinating market? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm still kind of, kind of figuring that part of it out, Tom. I, um, I'm certainly going to be doing things. I mean, I'm not, I'm not planning on sitting on the couch and watching TV <laughs> for sure. Um, I'm going to, you know, I, I will say that there are some things in, I'm going to be moving to North Carolina. Um, my wife the and great I, migration. <laughs> yeah, my wife and I are. Uh, we've already bought a house down there, so we're going to go down there. And so I'm going to do a little bit of work with the uh, Democratic Party, or at least I'm, that's my plan. But I also want to look at ways that I can give back, whether it's working uh, um, in high schools and mentoring uh, folks. I mean, there's uh, you know young people. I, so there's a lot that I'm going to be looking at doing, and I might get my hands into some other things too. Where I'm still kind of looking into that. All right. Well, we wish you luck in whatever you decide to do in the future. Tony Reardon is president of the National Treasury Employees Union. Great having you in. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Check off the Federal Drive on your device. Subscribe to the podcast edition wherever you get your shows. Still to come, how the Naval War College teaches sailors about dealing with the China threat. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. My guest in studio is Tony Reardon, the longtime president of the National Treasury Employees Union. He'll be stepping down in August when his term expires. We spent a lot of time talking about IRS, but NTEU is much more than IRS these days. 34, I believe. 34, you're right. Yeah, tell us how it got to be so spread out, even though it still has treasury in the name. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, that started, and and you know uh, Bob Tobias well, who was the national president of NTEU two presidents ago. And then, uh, of course, Colleen Kelly, who preceded me as one of my favorites as national president. Yeah, they're both two of my favorite human beings. As is Bob, I should yeah. say. Yes, he's a regular here. Yeah, and they they uh, I remain very close to uh, both of them. But you know, the fact is, I think what really transpired was, you know, starting really with um, with Bob. I mean, it probably started with Vince Connery, though I didn't personally know Vince, who was our first full time NTU president, and then Bob came in. Um, you know. 
NTEU, I think, is really well known as being a very thoughtful, professional, hard-charging union. And as a result, other agencies, employees in other agencies said, hey, wait a minute, you know, what you guys are doing for the IRS, we look at the contract, we see how strong the IRS um, uh, collective bargaining agreement is. we want that. And so it just started to build, and it's just continued to build over time. Most recently, we've added uh, three chapters uh, with the uh, Bureau of Land Management. And so we're, we're always, you know, we're always looking um, at growing as long as the um, agencies and the, and the jobs of the people that we would be uh, representing are a good fit with NTEU. Now, in the public sector, in the federal level, anyhow, unions are proscribed by law from bargaining over pay and benefits because people are in the system that they're in. So what are the elements, in your opinion, that make a good collective bargaining agreement for the federal sector? Yeah, I mean, I think there are, um, Tom, a a lot of different um, pieces of it. I mean, I think in terms of, you know, the all of the work that people have to do – NTEU through the collective bargaining agreement and unions in the federal sector in the collective bargaining agreement process have the ability to touch on how work is done, what work is done. It it deals with every single element of a uh, an employee's work life. Um, you know, in terms of work flexibilities, telework, and and telework is one that I am particularly. Uh, uh, pay particular attention to now, given the the uh, pandemic, and really the change in what's happened in the in the uh, workplace. People are looking for uh, for telework. So, you know, the collective bargaining agreement has obviously so many different elements, but it's all those things that I think are uh, really important. And a lot of people say this is one of these popular tropes that you can't fire a federal employee. It's impossible. They have jobs for life no matter how they perform. And does it look that way from your standpoint? No, it doesn't look that way at all. And I think that's just, you know, um, um, another uh, uh, inaccuracy that's that's put out there as kind of an attack on on uh, federal sector unions or unions in in general, but certainly, as you've described it, federal sector unions. Look, the reality is that nobody wants employees who are um, not doing what they're supposed to be doing. The problem is, and what we've always maintained, if, you know, it's important, let me say it this way, it's important for federal managers to make sure that they are dealing um, in an honest, upfront way with employees, making sure that they're trained, making sure that they are communicating with them. If somebody is truly just not doing the job, um, there are ways to take action against them. Federal agencies have a way to do it. Certainly NTEU and unions have their role to play in the process. Um, and you know, if, if everybody does their job, the right thing typically will, will happen. I wanted to ask you about a phenomenon of the Trump years, which I never really directly asked a union, and that is the unions lost their official time, and in many cases they lost their physical offices that they had in the large agencies, like IRS and some of the other unions in their, in their agencies. What was that like? I mean, what well, was the real effect there? Well, let me, let me just say that um, at NTEU we did not experience a, a lot of that, because what happened was 
Um, and you're referring to um, the uh, May 2018 executive orders that the Trump administration put forward. And but but those executive orders did not um, impact where unions had contracts, collective bargaining agreements already in place. So we did not experience that, for example, in places like uh, the IRS or CBP, which are our two largest agencies where we uh, represent employees. We did, however, experience that in health and human services. And so what was it like? Um, it was, um, I, I would say, a morale buster for, for employees because the message was that you, federal employee, HHS, HHS employee, you don't matter. We don't care if you have a say in your work life. You're the ones on the front lines doing the work. You understand who it is, you know, the work that you're doing and what you're doing for the American people, but we don't really care about what you have to say and, and don't want your input. And that's the way that it played out. And so it was this whole issue of trust, I think, was really violated between agency leadership and, and um, uh, frontline employees. And frontline front line employees concluded, you don't care about me. And when you have that in the mix, it's a major, major problem. And are things, would you say, demonstrably better now? Yes. Yes, without question. Um, in fact, um, we are um, uh, very close at HHS to um, finalizing a new contract. And so, you know, one of the one of the things that I would do is or I would say is that when you look at the Biden administration, they have really um, done, I think, a great deal in terms of looking at at the labor management relationship and understanding the importance of it and trying to position their agencies to be uh, to, to be a better um uh, partner, if you will, with uh, unions. We're speaking with Tony Reardon, president of the National Treasury Employees Union. He'll be retiring in August. And in the time we have left, let's talk about you. Okay. Because uh, your dad was associated with NTEU. And tell us more about your own history. Yeah, I, I would love to. So, you know, I, I, I actually was just telling this story to a group of NTEU leaders yesterday. You know, when. Um, before I came to NTEU, yes, my dad spent uh, about eight years at NTEU. He was, in fact, um, hired by Bob Tobias, uh, one of my predecessors. And then, and then after my dad left, then I was hired um, in um, 1990 by uh, Bob Tobias. And, you know, I remember thinking before I ever came to NTU, you know, and, and Bob had what he called an executive committee at that time, senior managers. And I remember thinking, wow, if I were to ever be to be in a position like this, and especially at NTEU, which was an organization that I truly loved because I understood what it did for the for federal employees, and I and I saw the love my dad had for NTEU and the respect he had for the union, and so I thought, wow, if I could ever be on the executive committee at NTEU, I will have arrived. And then, lo and behold, someday I become, you know, in 2015, I become the national president. So it has been really the honor of my life um, to be the president of NTEU. And what occupies the president's time day to day? Oh, it's it's all kinds of things. It's doing um, media. You know, I, I would say that just generally speaking, the national president is the chief spokesperson 
of NTEU. So that certainly involves the media. It involves talking to our chapter leaders, hearing the stories of federal employees. Because the truth be told, in the NTEU story, it's the members, it's the frontline employees and our chapter leaders who are the heroes. And so I spend a lot of my time talking to them because hearing their stories is how I frame um, my discussions, whether it be with the media, the uh, with Congress, with agency heads, um, with the administration. So those are all important uh, elements, I believe. And how are relations with the other federal unions? I mean, typically in the industrial sector, there is one union that kind of covers a particular function. Do you operate like the five families and you've got a division of territory or how does that work? No, um, no, we don't. And But what I will say about the relationship is I think that the major unions, federal sector unions, I think work pretty well together and certainly have a great deal of respect for one another. Um, But your your style is a lot different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say that's I would say that's probably true. And, you know, we don't always agree on everything, certainly. But. We try to pay attention, and I've had very recent conversations, for example, with uh, President Everett Kelly at AFGE, where you know we've talked about ways that we can work together, because I think it is essential for the labor movement to come together, because we all understand that there's strength in numbers. And um, so, as a result, we really do try to find ways that we can complement one another, work with one another on various issues, whether it be in the courtroom um, or at the bargaining table or, or wherever it is that we can kind of help each other. And earlier you said you're old, but you seem pretty energetic to me. So post-retirement, will you really retire and fish or will you keep a, a hand in this, uh, this fascinating market? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm still kind of, kind of figuring that part of it out, Tom. I, um, I'm certainly going to be doing things. I mean, I'm not, I'm not planning on sitting on the couch and watching TV <laughs> for sure. Um, I'm going to, you know, I will say that there are some things in, I'm going to be moving to North Carolina. Um, my wife and I. Great migration. (laughs) Yeah. My wife and I are, uh, we've already bought a house down there. So we're going to go down there. And so I'm going to do a little bit of work with the, uh, democratic party, or at least I'm, that's my plan. But I also want to look at ways that I can give back, whether it's working, uh, um, in high schools and mentoring, uh, folks. I mean, there's, uh, you know, young people. I, so there's a lot that I'm going to be looking at doing, and I might get my hands into some other things too. But I'm still kind of looking into that. All right. Well, we wish you luck in whatever you decide to do in the future. Tony Reardon is president of the National Treasury Employees Union. Great having you in. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Check off the Federal Drive on your device. Subscribe to the podcast edition wherever you get your shows. Still to come, how the Naval War College teaches sailors about dealing with the China threat. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The past three administrations, anyhow, have named China as the top U.S. rival or maybe threat. Military leaders model what would happen in a conflict in and around Taiwan. At the Sea Airspace Conference earlier this week, I discussed how the Naval War College teaches about the China rivalry when I caught up with professor and retired Navy officer James Holmes. When we talk about China, What's the official word at the Naval War College? Is it an enemy, frenemy, rising rival? What, what, what is it? 
You know, that's an outstanding question, and it, it sounds like such a simple thing, but it's something that we talk about a lot. I mean, if you if you go ahead and call China an enemy, I mean, in a sense, in a sense, you're almost foreclosing a lot of options. Uh, you know, for competing in peacetime, for uh, working with them diplomatically, for doing things. We, sometimes we do things with them at sea, such as in the Western Indian Ocean, countering piracy. So, I personally, I, I personally try to, to uh, st shy away from that word until China gives me no options. I talk to talk about them as an opponent, an antagonist, sometimes adversary, whatever the case may be. So we try to we try to stop a little bit short of that, so as not to create a self-fulfilling prophecy of China basically listening to what we say and assuming that everything else except fighting is off the table. Yeah, I mean it's a big difference from the days of say the Cold War when there was not all that much economic interdependence between the Soviet Union and the United States, or for that matter, from Germany of, of the 30s and 40s. Now China and us are totally interdependent economically. And that's, that's a complicating factor. Is that something you teach in the background at the War College? Yeah, sure. Uh, we, we teach two core courses. We have an intermediate level course pitched to mid-grade officers and then a senior level course pitched to, pitch to senior officers, commanders and captains and their equivalents in the other services. And the senior course is, mu is much more pitched at the grand strategic level where you do talk about a, a fair amount about ec economics and things like that. So at the intermediate level, it's, it's much more focused on warfare, you know, what happens between the time the, war the shooting starts and the time it, sh it stops. But when you kick it up as, as high as uh, national policy and uh, people such as we walking around here in Washington that's I mean you're, you're going to be bringing in diplomacy economic statecraft and the other and the other elements as well and you're right it's absolutely crucial it, 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 I'm an old coal warrior myself and it was it just was not the same thing during it between us and the, and the Soviet Union which is one reason I try to it always makes me uh, a little bit uh, leery when we start talking about a Cold War too just because it's very different the, the, China today is not the Soviet Union in 1950 or pick your favorite date yeah and you know the concept of absolute capacity is a big figure in planning for war or preparing for war. The United States always had the greatest absolute capacity relative to other nations that it conflicted with. China has greater absolute capacity by maybe a factor of two to three over the United States. Is that, how does that figure into doctrine and teaching and training? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that we're always being the Naval War College. We're always scoping back to World War II and the Pacific in particular. I mean, think about comparing China as an opponent today to Imperial Japan in 1941 or whatever your favorite date for the competition is. At that point, the United States had about, about a 9 to 10 to 1 economic advantage over over Japan in, uh, in, in terms of uh, gross domestic products we, we we could build a lot more ships and they couldn't they couldn't replace their losses very easily and it's just a whole different a whole different thing with China China's the biggest shipbuilder in the world which is one reason they're building their Navy and their merchant fleet up so rapidly and so forth so you, know, you could look at Japan you could look at the Soviet Union but but yes you just uh, doing all those historical uh, legwork you just have to think it's a different uh, situation we're in today and so therefore you have the strategic offset which is technologically based and not raw materials and how many people can we throw in the field based. Yeah, that's, a, that's sort of the other side of the equation. I mean, the Soviet, the Soviet Navy was, by, by the 1960s and certainly into the 1970s, the Soviet Navy was, they always vastly outnumbered us. I mean, the Soviet Navy at one point operated about 300 attack submarines, nuclear-powered attack submarines and conventional subs. But like you say, this, on, on the offset side, it's, it's not all about materiel. It's about the human factor, seamanship, tactics, gunnery, all, the, all, the, all those sorts of things that, that people bring to the table. But as a century ago, Admiral Bradley Fisk pointed out in his book, the Navy as a fighting machine it takes a skilled and motivated user to get 100% of the design performance out of a piece of gear. So we, we hope that we, we are better suited to, to that than China is, even, even though they're, they're, they're gaining the, in fact, they have gained the advantage in numbers in the Navy. 
All right, so then really from the War College standpoint, you have, an, I mean, the Navy, let's say, has an immediate need, an immediate strategy of positioning and so forth and posturing, but then there's the long term. Is that pretty much what the Navy War College, the Naval War College is concerned with more than what are we going to do next month? Yeah, I think, I think that's a pretty fair thing to say. I mean, the, the War College is a, it's kind of an interesting academic institution because we're bifurcated between the wargaming side, the research side, which is more, which is more fo focused on what we are doing right now, how can we do things better today. And then I'm on the, I'm on the academic side, and, we, and so in our teaching and in our, in our personal writings and so forth, we do tend to take the, take the longer view just because that's, that's a different mission from uh, doing war games about how to, we just had a war, we just had a game on contested logistics last week. I mean, that's, that's a very uh, rip from the headline topic. So, so you're right, there's no single war college view about, uh, about any of these topics. We try to be an academic place and squabble among ourselves, but I think that's the drift of opinion. And again, relative to China, what do you teach in terms of cultural orientation? Because the language is different, the hemisphere is different, the history is different. I mean, it's almost a, a different universe inhabited relative to even maybe the Russians and people in Eastern Europe versus the West as we understand it. Is that part of the curriculum? Yeah. Yeah, we do it. We do as well as we can. We, well, sort of two things on the on the academic side where I, where I teach. We 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 have a, quite a bit of uh, Asia and and uh, China content in the courses, reaching all the way back to the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 and 1905, and on up to China. The competition with China today, we do the best we can get getting a, getting a handle on Chinese history, Chinese culture. We obviously can't teach Mandarin in the short period our students are with us, but we do have a core of expertise in Mandarin speakers and, and East Asian language speakers in the departments who help us find materials that are good in English and so forth. The other side is that since 2006, on the research wing of the, of the War College, we've had what we call the China Maritime Studies Institute, and these are exclusively Mandarin speakers, and they basically sit and read Chinese documents and think about them and translate them for us every day. That's really helpful because then we can import that back into the academic side and, and, and make all of us smarter. Because many Chinese people do know English. I once was speaking oh, to excellent. A, <laughs> a class of Chinese speaking to, well, from China. And there was a translator there and everything I would say, they would say in Chinese. And I made a joke and I, I said to the translator, I said, don't translate that. You all got it anyway. They all laughed. So I knew they knew exactly what I was saying before uh, exactly. the translator said it. You know, I, I picked my foreign language in 1982 when the Cold War was going on forever, and German seemed like it would be it would be something that would be everlasting. If I had if I had been able to look 40 years into the future and see what was happening, I, I, might, I might well have gone the Mandarin route myself. And so. what is your own background? Well, I uh, graduated from Vanderbilt in '87. Was commissioned in the Navy as a surface warfare officer. Uh, steamed around in the battleship Wisconsin for four years. Uh, did Desert, Desert Storm. Taught in the Navy training and ed education and community. And while I was doing that, I attended the War College in the evening and just got hooked by all the historical and the, and the theoretical material and decided to get out of the service and, and do it from this side of the podium if, pro if possible. That, uh, so I, so I, I went up to the Fletcher School at Tufts uh, for PhD. My, my wife and I ended up moving to Athens, Georgia for seven years to, to work at the University of Georgia and that provided the platform to get back to Newport in 2007. And here we are. Interesting. And what is the approach these days of the jointness idea? I mean, that's been around since before either one of us was born, the idea of a joint purple force, it feels like it's actually starting to be something that's realized. I think it has to be if we're going to compete at sea. I mean, if you think about what's, what can be done at sea from platforms, from tactical aircraft or missiles or whatnot based on land out at sea, 
there you have an Air Force, an Army, and a, and a rocket force that are ground-based elements contributing to the fight at sea. Supplement, if you're trying to, that, those elements are supplementing the fleet's efforts at sea. And that could be China's great equalizer in a fight for, with ourselves if indeed we remain the superior Navy, but we also have to figure in the, the, the joint force that we're going up against, which is one reason I think you see the U.S. Air Force also taking a, a big interest in uh, sinking ships conducting war games and dropping precision minefields and doing all that stuff. So I think that I think our sister services are taking this uh, this maritime mission on board and I think that's a great thing. Yeah, in fact I earlier spoke with a Air Force training officer for air for airmen and he said that there is a piece of technology and an approach that the naval aviation operation is using that the Air Force wants to bring over. I guess there's no more evidence of purpleness than that. Yeah, the Navy and the Air Force and the aviation communities have taken somewhat different philosophies to, to aircraft design over the years. I mean, the Air Force has been all in on stealth for the last 30 years, and the Navy has tended to put its confidence more in electronic electronic warfare, more active measures. But now, you, I mean, now I, like you said, I think you actually see sort of a merger of those two things. We're, we've moved in their direction, and I think they're coming in our direction as well. You'll always have the shorter runways. Yeah, I've, I've probably made my last carrier landing, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's, that, that happened in a real hurry. <laughs> James Holmes is a professor at the Naval War College. I spoke with him at the Sea Airspace Conference just after a panel on Indo-Pacific security. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 57 past the hour. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. And now, the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, April 6th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of the Federal Drive, how the Naval War College teaches sailors about dealing with the China threat. Plus, a long-serving federal union leader calls it a career. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, as if it were a city, the Defense Intelligence Agency's infrastructure needs more lanes to handle the traffic. Cities might deal with streets. The DIA is expanding its network. Joanna Jojo Lesia-Longe, senior technical advisor for DIA, tells Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday about delivering the future architecture for the Joint Worldwide Intelligence Communication System, or JWICS, program. And we are really working on expanding the highway that will deliver a higher capacity and bandwidth to our customers as we enter the um, cloud uh, modernization as well and the delivery of JWCC and the C2E contract. So from both sides in the IC and the DOD uh, customers-wise, we are really looking to being able to deliver uh, higher throughput and better services to our community as a whole. JWIX is the Joint Worldwide Intelligence Communication System, the top secret network really for the entire federal government, and it's about a three-decade-old network that's in need of a tech refresh, and it's now moving into the cloud and, and things like that. So th it sounds like a pretty dynamic time. You know, what role does the cloud play in the future of JWIX? JWIX, if we think about it as a highway, and just like AT&T and Verizon, 
right? Uh, we expanded our capacity on how we support our customer base. And so as we start in investing in better technology, machine learning, tactical communications, and we start trying to integrate how the battle space commanders work together with the intelligence community, they need applications that take higher bandwidth, right? And that they are integrated across the board. So no longer do we need to have systems that are stovepiped and they can't work together. And so what the cloud systems allow us to do is to be able to have an area where we can move into um, more smart location and move those applications that can work faster and better with, without having to really worry about having so many different data centers and having to spend so much resources on aging architecture and maintaining our infrastructure that really ages really fast. Uh, so it kind of really helps us being able to integrate our systems together and work smartly. The intelligence community has been dabbling with the cloud, uh, or maybe a bit more for a while now. There yeah. was the, the C2S contract, and now you, you mentioned the C2E contract that was awarded a few years ago. What do you think the intelligence community and all of its security requirements, what, what have you learned so far about using the cloud over the last decade, and uh, how does that, I guess, propel you into the future? It's a partnership. Mm -hmm. uh, the risk doesn't necessarily just transfer and we can't necessarily just ignore the risk. We just saw this last week with the leak of uh, some of the email services, right? So just because we're moving to the cloud does not mean that we no longer have a risk and that it's on the cloud service providers. It's a partnership here where they also have a part of infrastructure that they have to secure. And we also, as customers, have our responsibilities to secure and so if we continue to work together and having a better visibility into what each other uh, does in the community, then it kind of strengthens the entire system architecture. So um, I think that one of our biggest lessons learned is to ensure that we have a strategy that encompasses an end-to-end -end security uh, rather than just having, um, you know, to, uh, to worry about transferring the security and not worrying about it. Got it. Yeah, it, it, they're still managing your data, and there's, I guess, clear expectations that have to be set up front about who's responsible for what. what? Yes. Yeah. And you also mentioned the JWCC contract and how DOD just finalized that uh, last last year. You've got, I guess, more of an array of cloud services now available to you from a contractual perspective. So, what's kind of the path forward now that you have both? C2E and JWCC in place for taking advantage of those this year? Well, so we have been working together with the, with the programs offices to find efficiencies where it makes sense for us to peer as service providers and ensure that we have those locations, kind of like a co-location of sorts, uh, where customers can have uh, better access to all of the uh, different services that will be available. Uh, that way it's not confusing on having um, one service over here and another one over there. So we've been really working together on understanding where in our locations, where do we peer, how do we structure those peerings, and which cloud service provider is going to be and where. And that's been kind of like a partnership, especially because we've been looking into how do we 
provide that data closer to the edge? And how do we ensure that the architecture is postured for that efficiency? And, and let's talk about the future of JWIX a little bit, uh, some of the requirements, something I know you've been focused on. What, what are some of those requirements for mission owners? What, what do those look like coming down the pipeline? So we have varying types of uh, mission customers. Some of our mission customers require um, the ability to move large amount of data back and forth. And so um, from that perspective, we are looking into upgrading the capacity of those circuits to make sure that those pipes are large enough to transfer that a large amount of data. For some of our customers, um, it requires lower latency. And so from that perspective, we look at the location of where we peer and where we have those data centers. So if one big Amazon service is in location and they need something smaller, then we put a smaller regional center closer to them. Uh, that might be one of the solutions. Or if our customers require tactical systems to respond to things like world events where they need to deploy quickly overnight, we may have a kit that is tactical and deploy it with them that has like a smaller site that is, enables them to have some kind of connectivity that lowers that latency and has access to that data. So we're seeing a lot of varying use cases that we are having to work with industry to understand how do we address specific scenarios. Interesting. So like quickly responding to a contingency or a situation right. like uh, Ukraine, right? Like Correct. that's probably a good example. Yes. What goes into that to the extent that you can describe it here, just scaling up something like that? What technologies, I guess, enable something like that? Um, I imagine right. you need to take advantage of, you know, maybe satellite, internet sometimes and mm -hmm. things like that. Yeah, we try to take a look at the use case of what might be needed and try to figure out what may be out there already without having to reinvent the wheel because it takes a long time to design some, something. So one of the biggest things that has aided us is partnering with industry and trying to understand what they have done in, re, in their scenarios. Um, if you take a look at some of the telecommunication systems to address some of the issues from a latency perspective with you know, cell phones, for example, right? If right. you want to take a look at Netflix or one of your TVs in there, right? So uh, what they have done is they have partnered with cloud service providers to have a smaller kit closer to those towers, right, for uh, the cell phone towers. And then it moves the data closer to, to that area so that way you can stream the data faster. So if we need to deploy faster, we look at some of those areas and kind of partner with industries to see what we can learn from them from that perspective. Joanna Jojo Lesiolange, Senior Technical Advisor for the Defense Intelligence Agency. Listen to the full interview as part of Federal News Network's third annual DOD Cloud Exchange. Just log on at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a long-serving federal union leader calls it a career. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.